This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is the film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on a streaming service and connect and compare it to older films, maybe by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. Sometimes we give some love to the work of a lead actor, supporting actor. My name's Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name's Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network. On this episode, we are taking a second look at James Bond 007. We're looking down the gun barrel at the Daniel Craig, the five-movie series, and looking at his newest in cinemas now, No Time to Die. We're going to be having a real broad look at all of the Bond movies, as well as taking a particular, I think, spoiler-filled look at this. Definitely, yes. So come back uh, and, and listen to us when you've seen No Time to Die. We're definitely going to be doing that in the next hour. Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears as we start this look at the last of the Daniel Craig James Bond movies to No Time to Die, freshly in theaters after years, it seems, of being in production and being on hold for its release due to the pandemic. And we're very happy that it's finally in theaters. We're finally able to experience it for ourselves after all that buildup, you know, after being shaken by news of an injury on set and stirred by the thought of it being the last Daniel Craig movie uh, in this series. And, and uh, it and really one, is this time because yes. he said inspector that he wasn't going to come yes, back, exactly. but he, he came back and he came back and I'm glad that he did. And I, it feels like uh, he's uh, refreshed by a, fresh bag of money, I guess, <laughs> the small fortune they've uh, lured him back with. But uh, I, I think uh, I think he's, you know, in the, his game here in uh, No Time to Die, even if other aspects of the film may not be. Uh, you know, on the whole, I was uh, fairly satisfied with this whole endeavor to uh, to wrap up this five-movie arc with uh, Daniel Craig's version of 007. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, there were bigger problems with Spectre. I think we can agree that Spectre was not the send-off we were hoping for. And although I also have a few issues with the new film, I think it's, on the whole, a better movie than Spectre was. Uh, And now, as I mentioned in the intro, we are going to just, this first segment, just talk about the film in a non-spoilerific way, as much as we can. Uh, And I think think it'll be fun to just go through and think about this as like a five-movie arc, because they've done that in a way that has changed the way James Bond is now perceived. I mean, coming out of uh, Pierce Brosnan, I don't think I was as excited or engaged by Bond as I am now because of these the new way that he has been treated, the way they gave him given the character more depth. I mean, I haven't always agreed with the decisions that have been made to personalize everything. All the, you know, the villains have to have some sort of personal connection to Bond. Not all of them, but many of them. And and all of that, much of that I felt was a little bit trite and and a little bit like, it wasn't necessary. Uh, and I think it went away, away from what's best about the character. However, I can't deny that the storytelling, especially in this final film, is strong. And I was pretty emotionally engaged by it. And, and that is not the case with all of the Bond movies I've seen over the, my lifetime. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Imagine if the, uh, 
the 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 Brosnan uh, Bonds were put under the same kind of microscope that the Daniel Craig ones have. Uh, obviously, those films are from a different era, you know, a pre-social media, pre-blogosphere um, kind of era of movie going. So so they they weren't really uh, taken apart to look at every nut and bolt the way the Daniel Craig movies have. And I I do think. Uh, you know, I don't think they would have, they don't stand up to the same kind of inspection. Whereas uh, overall, I find most of the Craig films do and and are worthy of revisiting. Um, even even a lesser film like what is generally regarded as the bottom of the pile, a Quantum of Solace, I think at least still has some value in terms of how it continues the story from Casino Royale and and some of the the new aspects of the character it presents, even if it doesn't necessarily win out in terms of story or some of the supporting characters. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that these movies get better when you see them a, a second or third time. I feel like maybe because my expectations of like a lifetime of watching these movies have, I've, I've sort of accepted what they've changed in the first viewing and I've groused about it. And then I go back and watch it and go, oh, well, what is actually here is actually very entertaining. There's a lot of laughs. There's great action sequences. And in Daniel Craig, you have an actor who I think brings something that, May, I mean, it's arguably the best performer, the most talented actor of the bunch. He brings so much more nuance to the character that I think that really is great because obviously they're thinking about him. Uh, the Bond is being considered and written in a more nuanced way. Yeah, well, I mean, Craig is such a highly trained actor. I mean, he's done Shakespeare, he's done stage work, uh, you know, certainly uh, more than just the kind of matinee idol good looks uh you know, to Dalton, to his credit, was was a very trained actor as well. But, but Craig just brings a, a certain kind of blend of gravitas and levity that uh, that we haven't seen in a long time, and you know, maybe not since Connery, in, in a way. So, but but at the same time, uh, just has that uh, that bag of you know acting skills that uh, that that has been so rare from uh, from this character you know he 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 may have been going through the motions a little bit inspector I, I think but uh but overall i think you know he was on his a game he's just just watching him move through a scene even if he doesn't have any dialogue you, you can feel this kind of presence of mind that he brings to to every moment that he's in the character yeah he crackles i mean there's no doubt that he is a leading man now i think maybe previous to to this these film series he wasn't always considered leaning leading man kind of uh he didn't he was unconventional looking in some ways and but his presence is is clear he is a star and and you know he will continue to be a star going forward. Uh, I think later in the show, we're going to talk a little bit about where Bond goes from here. And, and you mentioned Timothy Dalton. I think there are some interesting parallels between Dalton's two-film run and Craig's five-film run, which I think we'll discuss. But anyway, let's talk about No Time yes. to Die. And uh, this is, again, it picks up from where Spectre left off. These films are Many of them, if not all of them, are direct sequels to one another with a lot of some uh, repeating characters uh, and repeating storylines, certainly um, plot points. We uh, we have a opening credit sequence, a pre-credit pre sequence, I should say, as, as these films all do, taking us back to a terrifying childhood encounter between the villain of the piece, the creatively named Lucifer Safin, played by uh, Rami Malek, and Madeline Swan, a childhood child when she was a child. Uh, of course, later she's played by Lea Seydoux, and she is Bond's love interest, and, uh, you know, her reappearance at all should cue you into that, the fact she's playing a much more key role here. And then we're off to southern Italy 
where Swan and Bond are off the grid enjoying life away from baddies. Uh, but uh, something happens and he gets sort of their time there is interrupted. Uh, you know, cue a terrific action sequence of one of the movie's many heavies that we meet someone named Primo, also known as Cyclops, um, who supports a cyber who, who sports, I should say, a cybernetic eyeball. I really enjoyed him, even though he's, you know, he's kind of a he doesn't have a lot of character, but he is is a fun daddy. Uh, and then we flash forward five years and Bond is still retired, though no longer with Swan, and his old CIA company pal, Felix Leiter, the always welcome Jeffrey Wright, tracks him down in Jamaica to recruit him on a special job to find a British scientist, played by De- David Denick, uh, who is, well, I guess he's not actually a British scientist, but I won't say any more about that, um, <laughs> who's been working on a biological weapon for MI6, and he took it with him following an armed incursion at the agency's London lab, so he's actually working for some else. Uh, all of this may sound a little confusing, but of course, many Bond plots are confusing. I actually found this one pretty uh, directly, like not difficult to follow. I felt like it's one of the more, even with all these moving parts and all these characters, I felt like this was one of the clearer Bond plots. And I really appreciated that. For the most part, it is. I, I you know, I'm trying to figure out why certain characters like switch allegiances and and uh, what exactly Safin's endgame is, uh, apart from, you know, kill all the humans, uh, <laughs> is, is, uh, is, is a little unclear. And, and you know, but it's so funny because I went back and I rewatched Dr. No. Okay. Uh, you know, just went back to the very start. It's not a film I revisit often because I feel that that's kind of like a proto-Bond film. I feel like, you know, I usually, you know, from Russia with Love, which is number two, is actually my favorite of the films. Um, and Dr. No just feels a little rougher around the edges and doesn't have a lot of the familiar uh, characters and so on that we're, that we're used to. Although it does have Felix Leiter in it, played by the uh, the awesome hair of Jack Lord from Hawaii Five-0. <laughs> uh, and... Um, I, uh, you know, I noticed some similarities there. Like Dr. No has the, the island lair, uh, with all the people in the radiation suits doing, you know, strange tasks that are never really entirely made clear. And, uh, you know, I guess he's trying to intercept, um, missiles and, and hold, uh, you know, the Western powers for ransom by, uh, being able to take control of their nuclear arsenals and, and so on. So, you know, it's sort of the same, the setting up the template for <laughs> pretty much every James Bond film that comes after. Um, but, uh, but also there's some un- lack of clarity there that, that it's, it's really not important, uh, you know, as long as we hit touch on all the, the various points of the, the evil lair and the, the, um, you know, the, the attractive uh, partner in crime with Bond uh, on his mission, in that case, Ursula Andress here, uh, Leia Sadu, uh, and and so on and so forth. So it's amazing, you know, going back, uh, you know, now 60 years, uh, how little has changed and how much has changed, uh-huh. I guess. And uh, I really kind of appreciated that comparing the two films that kind of bookend the 007 era as we know it, how many similarities are still there. And uh, and I sort of went off on a tangent, but... but uh, you know, it's 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 why we forgive these films so many of their faults, I guess, is because they're kind of baked into the formula in in a big way. Yeah, and I feel like okay, so people either you're either on board with Bond or you're not, and this particular part of the franchise has really taken some risks with Bond, with uh, again the personalizing, which is something I'm not necessarily a fan of, but but just to humanize him. I mean, the first thing they did with 
Casino Royale is take him back to sort of his beginnings and explain one of the key parts of his character, which is why he is so chilly, especially towards women. And uh, and and it gave him at least, a, if not excusing it, at least a psychological background that I really I really appreciated that part of the storyline. You know why he's so damaged, and uh, and that that I I thought was was very smart, and it, it informs all the movies that follow. And of course, the villains have changed, but they have, as we've discovered over time, they have been connected, and we they brought back the the villainous organization Spectre from uh, from the the Connery films and that, and that of course also from the, the novels, I guess, although was it Schmirsch was they, was that what they were called originally? I can't um, recall. I, Spectre is there actually. Okay. In, in, in uh, Smirsch is kind of like a quasi Soviet kind of thing. And Spectre is more of the super villain, you know, umbrella organization. Um, uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember the distinction, but I, I feel like Spectre is even mentioned in Dr. No. So okay. right, right from the get go until they have that break with Thunderball and the, ensuing complications with its sort of producer screenwriter who took claim of all that specter stuff and right. Blofeld and so on. But, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing how well some of this stuff stands up all these uh, decades later and how some of it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. But they have made these new movies relevant and exciting for people because they, yeah, they're hugely so. popular uh, and they've done it again with this film. We do get the exotic you know, and I say that in quotes, locations, we get Cuba, a Norwegian fjords, a rocky outcrop near Japan, which is actually shot on the Faroe Islands, and all these, you know, international locales, which I think are a big part of what makes the series so enjoyable. Uh, even now, I mean, of course, in the 60s, jet setting like that was a huge luxury, and I'm sure part of the appeal. I still think it's part of the appeal. Uh, Craig's scene partner from Knives Out, Anna de Armas, shows up, appearing, I think, all too briefly as a, a quite an unexpectedly capable agent, Paloma. And uh, and then Bond's replacement in the double O program is, her name is Nomi, played by Lashana Lynch, who I also sort of wished I we got to do more with her, although she's in it for more of the film. Yeah, those are those are two characters I really enjoyed uh, being added to the to this particular film. Yeah, well, of course, later in the show, we're going to talk about what we think about uh, this series going forward, because there's going to be more of them. They're going to reboot it. And uh, we'll see if they wipe the slate clean in the same way they did with uh, Casino Royale and so on. But we'll save that for another segment. But uh, I, I, anything new that was added for this film, I, I, I definitely pretty much enjoyed. Uh, although, as far as the villain goes, Safin, I kind of wish we had a little more of him. Uh, because, you know, there are all these sidetracks to, you know, to go see Blofeld in prison and, you know, Safin kind of engineers this whole thing to, to, to get close to him for reasons we'll discuss in a second. But, um, and then he's gone for a long period of time and then, you know, we spend a lot of time tracking him down, uh, and then he pops up for the third act. I, I, I wish maybe a little more time spent with him and his motivations because Rami Malek is great as the character, but I feel like if you're going to get Rami Malek in your film, you should maybe make better use of him or make more use of him. I, I, I don't know why he gets so uh, kind of lost in the plot, as it were, of this film. Yeah, I don't know that I felt the same way. I felt like he's he is the most traditional Bond puzzle piece. 
in this fifth Craig movie. I think his, his Haffen has got uh, creepily obsessive, hissable, insane. I mean, he is the most traditional element, I think, and he reminds me so much of other Bond villains. And I, I kind of appreciated that he kind of haunts the movie. Like, you know these out there, you know mm-hmm. that he's dangerous, but we don't know why. Although, granted, I don't know that we entirely understand why he's doing everything he's doing by the end either. <laughs> um, just, you know, He just hates humanity. Yeah, that's basically. right. That's right. Um, but I did like... I I think director uh, Carrie Joju, Joju uh, Fukunaga, he keeps things moving at a really good pace. Uh, and of course, the you know much discussed Phoebe Waller-Bridge was brought in to uh, punch up the script uh, by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who are the regular Bond writers. I mean, f- very regular. They've been working on, I think, since the 90s. Um, and of course, you know, people have talked a lot about her work. She is well-known for Fleabag and for Killing Eve, which is a great spy show, by the way. If you haven't watched that, it's uh, available, I think, on CBC Gym. But, um, you know, I think she brings some humor and some especially wit to the female characters. I think, uh, I mean, I there were times when I, I thought I could detect her voice in, coming out of some of the characters' mouths. But overall, um, I think that this is, although the tone is still pretty heavy and pretty serious, especially as we go into the third act, there are, there's a lot of dry humor here that if you, you know, if you pause to, to, to pay attention, I think, uh, there's a lot of laughs, uh, that, uh, they're, they're, they're subtle, but they are definitely there, there, and they are in tune with what we expect from Bond. Yeah. She's the first female screenwriter to work on a Bond film since Joanna Harwood worked on the first three, I think. She was a contributor to the screenplays for Dr. No, for Much With Love and Goldfinger. And then, you know, then it was a solid boys club for the next uh, several decades. And I I think, uh, you know, I, I think uh, that was uh, long overdue. And I, I definitely think she adds some some wit and sparkle to this film as you say i think maybe some of m's persnickety-ness might have might have come from her <laughs> yeah um you know i i i think uh i think maybe uh q might uh get a get a bit of a boost from her contributions to the script he he's uh, he's very strong in all of his scenes um and uh, it's great to see more of ben wishaw's character and his you know very uh uh, t- his very precise and painstaking cue uh, and his his sort of exasperation at dealing with Bond, which of course is a trademark. The quartermaster always hates the fact that you know he's developed these things that are just going to get taken into the field and destroyed. And I think, I think he brings some of that that classic uh, energy to the character, but with his own personal touch. And but and I feel that. You know, she's kind of really feeding off that energy, but also giving it something new. Yeah, absolutely. It's always good to see these characters are established now. Eve, Money, Penny, uh, M, uh, and and uh, Q. These are the, these are are almost a family around Bond in a way that I don't think those characters. I mean, obviously we remember them from the previous films, but uh, but they feel. I think we're more warm to them. They're giving a little more to do here. I mean, uh, Q, uh, who in the Actually, one of the Dalton movies we watched becomes kind of a field agent. Here he's, you know, in these movies, he's he's given the opportunity to step out of the lab, which is something I think that's kind of special and, and that helps make these films more interesting. Um, and now I think we're starting to get close to spoilers, you know, uh, vicinity. So maybe we should pause and, uh, and take a break and then come back. And then we're going to start talking about what really happens towards the middle and end of this film. And uh, so if you haven't watched it yet, please do that. And then, uh, you know, come back and, uh, and we'll, uh, 
we will uh, we are going to spoil it you know all over the board and and see what uh, I'm really interested in hearing Stephen what you make of what happens in this film and what happens with Bond going forward. All right, so we're back now on Lens Me Your Ears talking about James Bond, No Time to Die, and this is the spoiler-heavy segment. Uh, from here on, I think it's pretty much fair to say we're just going to talk about the movie. Uh, now, I was reminded that back in in Skyfall, Daniel Craig's Bond has its conversation with Javier Bardem Silva, where uh, Bond says, everyone needs a hobby. What's yours? Asks Silva. And Bond says, resurrection. <laughs> and that's, I think, at the core element of James Bond, his ability to resist death despite all close calls. He comes back again and again from certain death. Uh, and well, at the end of No Time to Die, James Bond dies. And uh, that is a shock. The bomb. Yeah, he there it the, is. But the there bomb. are others. There are other things that happen in this film. I think he's not the only one. Um, Felix Leiter, who is a character I always really liked, especially uh, Jeffrey Wright uh, playing him, uh, he passes away too. As a, at a, I think, as a at a point where they're trying to give Bond more personal again. A, personal connection and investment and raise the stakes. And I think that's actually one of the things this film does reasonably well is, is again, it's all about the personal thing, which I guess they're just, they've ground me down after five movies, <laughs> but I think, I think this one does it better than some of the others. And I, I felt like they actually give, uh, they give Felix a good, a couple of really good moments here that it was great to see him again, but I'm, I, I was actually kind of bummed to see him, see him go out. Uh, well, I mean, Leiter is the kind of the closest thing he ever has to a friend in uh, in the whole series from from the from what I can remember of it, and uh, in his various various iterations, uh, going right back to Doctor No, uh, where they first meet for the first time, at least cinematically, and 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 so the, of course the different bonds. It seems like they have to reestablish the the relationship between them, but it it, it seems like in especially in this film, there's. Uh, this kind of bonhomie between them that is entirely new, that, that it's more than just professional. And, and I, I, I've read a couple of reviews that kind of question the relationship they have here. Like, well, you know, they're, they're being way more friendly than you'd expect from a couple of agents who are ostensibly on the same side, but, you know, maybe after the same goals for different reasons or what have you. And I was thinking, well, you know, they met in Jamaica to begin with, way back in Dr. No. Uh, there's a good chance that in the five years that are the gap, the five year gap between the first uh, segment and when we meet uh, Bond uh, out spearfishing on his boat or whatever in Jamaica, that there's a good chance that he and Leiter have spent some more time together just hanging out, which uh-huh. is kind of an interesting prospect, just the thought of them going out for beers in Kingston or whatever. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to see them enjoying themselves together here while Leiter is trying to pitch him on the idea of coming to work uh, for his side and uh, and the complications that ensue as a result of that so it's it is one of the more interesting relationships in the novels and in the films and and uh you know i it, as you say it's great to have it have that extra dimension and it kind of needs to have that to have the the, the punch of uh, what happens to felix at the hands of a a betrayal uh on behalf of one of his other agents so uh you know i'm i'm, I'm fully on uh, team lighter and I'm, I'm i'm glad to see him have such a substantial role in the film as opposed to just giving him a dossier and telling him to go off and 
find something or whatever. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you know, it's funny. Uh, Eon Productions that make Bond movies run by the Broccoli's, uh, uh, Robert Broccoli and Michael Wilson, um, they have been very, uh, you know, tight-fisted when it comes to expanding the the IP. You know, at this, t- this era of Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's funny how focused they've been on just the movies. Uh, they've obviously, there's been video games, but, uh, and of course, there's licensing with clothes and and products and stuff, but but they haven't like I always wondered whether or not they might considered like a TV series starring Felix Leiter, or Jeffrey Wright. I mean that would be awesome. I could see that being a big thing. I, I actually heard on the IndieWire podcast that they were approached by Lego to do like a Lego Bond, <laughs> and they turned them down. Uh-huh. Like you know, there's a lot of opportunity there. I'm wondering. I think we'll talk about that later. Just where Bond could go from here, and and I guess you know Felix Leiter's you know, series starring Jeffrey Wright is just not going to happen. But but that I thought would be like an obvious thing that would be great fun. Well, they, they even talked about the possibility of a Jinx movie with Halle Berry right. back after around the time of Die Another Day. And then the film was so painfully drubbed all over the place that uh, that just uh, didn't get off the drawing board. And and I like her in the film. I mean, it's it's certainly not a great swan song for Pierce Brosnan, but but she's one of the highlights of the films. I thought she, uh-huh. she, she brings a really interesting energy with this uh, character. She's kind of giving him grief, and and uh, you know she's not the regular swoony uh, female accomplice uh, that Bond usually gets. You know, she she kind of gives as good as she gets in that film. It would have been great to see more of her, but, uh, but yeah, a Felix series, even if they maybe even made it a little retro somehow, um, would have been cool. Like they can completely take him out of continuity altogether. And, you know, Felix early days or something, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Maybe there is still an opportunity there, but yeah, we will talk about that more later. Yes. Exactly. Um, you know, we're still talking about die another day here and some of the other big things that happened in the film, including, James Bond having a child, which he wasn't aware of uh, for those five years. Uh, but did, could they have found a cuter little girl to play, play, you know, Mathilde? Uh, lovely. I mean, that, again, talk about stakes. That all of a sudden makes all the things he's doing feel more uh, important and more frightening when she's put in danger. And I, uh, I, I actually, I thought they did that pretty well, too. Yeah, because that could have gone horribly wrong, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, bringing a kid into the Bond franchise, uh, you know, they could have been painfully cute or whatever, but she's she's not like a painfully cute child actory kind of uh, kind of girl. So so I think, it, you know, they play her fairly realistically, um, you know, her mom uh, in that early flashback when um, when Madeline is a child and, and she has to defend herself. I mean, she, she shows herself to be very capable and clearly she's passed some of that, even though uh, the the daughter is, Matilda is much younger uh, than Madeline was in the flashback. Uh, she still, you know, is able to kind of handle herself in a, in a tricky situation. So that's, that's kind of fun to see, but it's not overplayed. It's not done for, for cutes. It's, it's, it's fairly uh, down to earth and, and uh, fairly endearing. Yeah. And you remember our, um, our guest on our first back in, I think episode 17 of lens mirror years. And we had uh, Lucas Cardona on a filmmaker who now residents resides in uh, Los Angeles, but he came on to talk about his favorite bond movies. Uh, and that was our sort of agenda. The last time was talking about our favorite overall favorite bond movies. Um, Lucas had heard this theory. I'm not sure if he came up with it or he'd heard it somewhere online that when Bond was being tortured by Le Chiffre in Casino Royale, <laughs> that Le Chiffre destroyed Bond's rep- reproductive organs, so to speak. And uh, that's when when Vesper made that comment about 
all of if all of him was left was his little finger or something, she would still he would still be more of a man than anyone she's ever met or something. I can't I'm paraphrasing here, but but um, you know it that kind of blew my mind that the thought that that's what had happened when he was being tortured. I mean, in that very unique and painful looking way. Um, of course, this puts paid to that. If he's been yes. able to have a daughter, then clearly that was just a theory that never quite <laughs> it never kind of rolled. But um, yeah, he's anyway. indestructible. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Every part of him can resurrect that's right yes um but on that thought what did you how did you feel when when the film when bond i mean at the end sacrifices himself for the greater good i mean i feel like for me it made sense for the craig bond it it made sense for his character in some some ways but i still i still can't reconcile the idea because bond is always been able to get out of that the idea that he would die at the end of one of these movies just kind of i'm still trying to come to terms with that well you know the the license to kill also comes with the caveat that it's also uh, a high probability that it's a license to die i guess that you know you can only do so many of these deadly missions without the, without the odds kind of coming down against you he's a he's a gambler after all and uh you know the, the obviously the, the craig films explore more of the romantic heart of Bond, uh, you know, first with uh, Vesper Lind and now with Madeline Swan, and I, and I guess that's maybe the most romantic gesture possible since he can't, you know, given what happens to him with the the, the nanobot slash virus, whatever the, whatever they retrocon it into, um, uh, that he's been infected with, and he can never see her or touch her again. Then it makes it makes perfect sense. I didn't have a have an issue with it, uh, you know. Uh, it it seemed like. Uh, you know, there was no point in, for him to go forward. And, and, and also, you know, like you talk about, um, in that, that last episode that we did way back when a few years back, uh, about how he's all about, you know, the classic bond is all about queen and country and duty and that sort of thing. And, and this is kind of like the ultimate manifestation of that. I thought hmm, that's an interesting perspective. I, I, yeah, I'm, I kind of, I'm still on the fence about it. I, cause I thought in fact, the fact that he's saffin poisons him with this nanobot viral you know, uh, killing germ. And it means that he, yeah, he can't be near, then he won't be able to be near, uh, uh, his daughter or his lover ever again. And I thought, I kind of imagined when, when he, he died, it would be a little bit more like, uh, you only live twice where he would at the very end, we would find out that he had somehow survived. He'd be in traction for, you know, for a while. Cause he was shot repeatedly, but, um, he had somehow survived, but he would be presumed dead to the outside world. And therefore, all he could do is go back to his job. And the end of the day, I thought it would loop back to the fact that he is his job. I've always sort of felt that about him, that the duty, you know, he might not be 007 anymore. If he is, he would be unknown, but he would have to stay away from the people he loves. And I thought that, although it would be a very tragic outcome, would kind of be true to the way the character has always been. I, James Bond doesn't get to settle down and be happy. He gets, he, he finds satisfaction through his work and through serving, you know, queen and country. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess I was like, as soon as he got poisoned, I was like, aha, so that's what they're going to do. And then that's not actually <laughs> what they did, which I, you know, I just, yeah, I was, I was surprised by that, by that choice. Well, I think it makes it a lot easier to do a clean slate uh, reboot <laughs> for sure. Cause like, nothing like, killing off your character to completely just start from scratch and of course we'll talk about that what we think they might do or what maybe what they should do in the in the third segment but uh you know i i, I thought it was uh you know an appropriate way for for craig's bond to go out that he felt that he'd 
at least he had some sort of legacy in in Matilda, I guess, and and he'd left his mark. And, it, and it's also kind of a nice nod back to Under Majesty's Secret Service in a way. Um, you know, yeah, and there's when, not, there's more than one nod. On well, this there's film, certainly right? yeah, one of the many nods. You know, where it's flipped around, where in fact uh, Tracy, who he marries, uh, is killed by Blofeld. So to flip that on its ear and and have um, um, Matilda and uh, Madeline survive, and he, you know, takes the the bullet, mm-hmm. the, the megaton bullet, as it were, uh, seems somehow poetic, I guess, on some level. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I guess I can see that. Uh, but it's going to be a while before emotionally I, I can get <laughs> yeah. there. Uh, and, you know, let's talk a little bit about the connections between this film and some of the older films. Honor Majesty's Secret Service, uh, the wonderful song sung by Louis Armstrong, which which actually we hear in an instrumental version at the beginning of the film. And the, the song, of course, um, We Have All the Time in the World. Bond actually says that at one point and then at the end we hear the full song and the car driving along the mountain pass you know it just it it, that i thought was a lovely nod to a film that all of the bond movies had gone previously that was the one where he was the most emotional where he did have the highest stakes and where he paid you know what some might call the ultimate price for his his job and uh yeah and i mean that connection i'm glad they made that explicit because i felt the emotion i think even more so because of the choice of the song even if i had i mean even if i hadn't known about the connection i think i would have felt it yeah it, it, it is uh it, it is a kind of a nostalgic nod to that and and the dr no connections that i mentioned earlier and and uh i was good with that i i uh, it's funny how that film has the pendulum has swung back and forth on Honor Majesty's Secret Service a few times, um, you know, mostly due to George Lazenby, who is quite good as Bond in the film. He, you know, it's, how could he follow Connery? And, you know, if it wasn't for his own sort of bizarre choices immediately after the film, we could have seen him in Diamonds Are Forever uh, afterwards. But uh, but it certainly was, uh, you know, a very human Bond in that film. And then, of course, after that film, you know, was met, greeted with mixed reactions. Of course, uh, Broccoli uh, decided to to go more towards the high escapism in with Diamonds Are Forever, and then of course the Roger Moore films, which rarely got serious in in a big way. Um, and uh, so, to acknowledge that that film, you know, deserves the attention that it didn't get back then and in the early seventies is is, is kind of touching, and especially for the hardcore fans who've been sort of rallying for it all along yeah for sure and you know who else i think i mean we mentioned this a little bit earlier but uh i i went back to rewatch the timothy dalton films and there are those who feel that dalton is the closest to uh, what fleming's idea of the fleming bond from the books that he is he's damaged he's angry he's intense you know in some ways uh i i think and when he was brought on i think they felt like he was kind of a course correction after the more bonds had gotten too silly and i I can see that, even though the movies themselves have have never been my favorite Bonds. Maybe because they they take on a few too many of the sort of '80s action tropes. Uh, they go away from from megalomaniacs wanting to destroy the world to like you know drug dealers wanting to make a buck, and uh, and some of that feels dated, I think. But. I got to give credit. Dalton is actually very capable. He's he's, you know, maybe not quite as comfortable in the tux or not quite as comfortable with the with the one liners, but he physically delivers and he has the right look. And uh, yeah, I I uh, I rewatched The Living Daylights from 1987, which um, 
starts super promisingly with the pre-credit sequence in Gibraltar. Oh, it's a great scene. Yeah, yeah it's great. Um, but I think gets a little bit lost later on. It's about him tracking down an arms dealer played by Joe Don Baker, who would play actually a CIA guy in Jack Jack Wade in a couple of the Brosnan Bonds. He's one of those two-time uh, Bond actors. Um, he's, he's found in Tangier, which I thought was interesting because Tangier comes up in uh, Inspector. Mr. White's, you know, clues, his, oh, sort of, right. his, his room in the hotel. Secret hotel room, yes. Yes, yes, where he, you know, how to find Oberhauser, which leads Bond and Dr. Swan uh, out into the desert. Uh, and then there's other connections, too. Um, Q Branch gives Bond a gun that is synced to his handprint, I think, in License to Kill. And so no one else can fire it. And Q does that again in Skyfall. So, I mean, these are small things, but it does suggest a connection between those two movies and the um, the Craig movies. And, uh, yeah, of the two, I think I liked License to Kill more. Uh, it is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a premise. Basically, uh, Felix Leiter, once again, getting married and Bond is his, is his best man, and in that opening pre-credit sequence, they have to chase a high-level drug <laughs> dealer uh, and capture him, and then skydive into the wedding in Florida, uh, which is a pretty awesome sequence, I gotta say. And it's very personal, and then bad things happen, and Bond decides to go rogue, uh, but he gets help from Q. Uh, which is funny, even though he's completely away from MI6 because he wants revenge with these drug dealers and goes down and, and uh, you know, goes down to Colombia or to somewhere in South South America and gets uh, involved in their organizations, bring us a bunch of cash with him. And it's, yeah, it's pretty entertaining stuff. Yeah, I just remember the tanker truck chase and Wayne Newton. For some reason, <laughs> that is televangelist. so weird. He's such a weird, like, little supporting character there. It's, yeah. it's it's odd, and I think I've maybe inflated the role of Wayne Newton in my mind. It's because I just can't imagine what he's doing in a Bond film. But the Living Daylights, um, or sorry, rather, licensed Living Daylights, I watched not too long ago, mm-hmm. and I kind of agree with a, a friend's assessment. There's basically James Bond as if it was produced by Canon Films, <laughs> just because they they, yeah. they they appear to have cut back on the budget, and and the the soundtrack is very 80s. It loses kind of the the class. John Barry sort of sweep uh, in terms of like a more Miami Vice-esque kind of soundtrack mm. and and um, License to Kill kind of continues in that vein and and uh, I have to say I, I wasn't that thrilled about it at the time so I need to go back and revisit uh, License to Kill for sure. Yeah, it's uh, I think of the two it's the one I enjoyed the most but, uh, but yeah. I and it's got you. Benicio Del Toro too. Well, so. that's it. Yeah, though he isn't in it a lot. He's sort of in there beginning and then he comes back in the end and he he meets a very horrible end but uh, he's great and uh, yeah, it's it's um, it's funny, you know, uh, you mentioned the music and we could do a whole show about Bond music. Uh, it's so oh, great sure. to hear, hear the score, Hans Zimmer's score in No Time to Die, I thought was amazing um and i heard a song i guess playing at the end of the living daylights that i didn't remember at all because it doesn't show up at any of the bond you know compilations which there's actually a new one out right now which i really recommend it's a three record set of all the songs yes it's awesome but it doesn't include uh, a song by the pretenders which closes oh yeah um it, it closes Living Daylights, and that was a song I completely forgotten about, and it doesn't show up on any of these compilations. So anyway, there is The Pretenders did a song, a Bond song, uh, and back in those days, there wasn't just the one in the opening credits, so it was a closing credits song, which uh, which I guess you, you can't include everything in no. these, these Well, Katie Lang did what, Surre- was it called Surrender in, in one of the Brosnan films? Oh, yeah. Which I thought was better than, maybe it was Goldeneye. 
don't quote me on that. But I remember liking the Katie Lang song better than whatever the the main song in that film was. And I'm I, I wish it was on that uh, the LP uh, set that uh, that's out there and right now. Yeah, this brand new one. It's it's pretty cool. And I I I still need a little more time to live with the new Billie Eilish song. Um, it's fine, but uh, it's funny because the last one, which although it won an Oscar, a lot of people weren't that happy with the Sam Smith song. From it's Spectre. weak. <laughs> I re- when I rewatched Spectre, I was kind of stunned by the writings on the wall. Uh-huh. And it just uh, yeah, I don't. I, I, nothing against him. I just felt that song just was a bit lackluster. Yeah, it's kind of won me over. It's I don't know really? why. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It, again, I didn't like it at first, but now I've heard it enough times. I feel like it's part of the deal. And of course, this new album has has you know all of the Craig themes. Uh, it's got the um, the Golden Eye theme by Tina Turner, which was all one I always kind of enjoyed. What, is uh, that the one that's actually written and produced by you too? That's right. right. Yeah, okay. Edge and Bono wrote and produced that one. So you know, there's um, yeah, the music is a big part of what works with these films and. And of course, whenever they have like a callback, like in No Time to Die, they have the Honor Majesty Secret Service theme play in the background of a scene where um, Bond and M have a conversation and basically M invites Bond to come back into the fold. And uh, and it was so good to hear that that theme again. I thought that was such so well chosen. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. And welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears for the third and final chapter in this look at No Time to Die, the latest, and for Daniel Craig, last installment in the 007 James Bond cinematic adventure that we've been on since, uh, well, since before we could remember, since certainly since before I was on this planet. And of course, uh, that's looking into the past of James Bond, which has had many iterations, many different actors playing the character. And Craig obviously went out with a bang, literally, uh, as as the character in No Time to Die. And now we've got to see what's going to happen with this franchise in the future. As it says at the end of the credits, James Bond will return, as it has said many times over the years uh, at the end of the credits. Uh, usually it'll say what the name of the next film is, but Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli have not been thinking that far ahead, apparently. that uh, I, I read one interview and where um, she said she doesn't want to think about recasting the character until like sometime next year and start the process for whatever the next uh, installment is going to be and, and what approach they're going to take. So, and I think they've deserved a bit of a breather, I think, after all this time to kind of really rethink what this character is about and where this franchise can go. Um, I would be happy maybe if they <laughs> called it a day with it, you know, that, that, but, uh, but I'm actually eager to see what uh, possibilities lay in store for this character uh, and uh, this, how they revamp them for, for this, uh, this century. I, oh, for sure. I mean, they have, they have, as I was saying, they have 
created, they've changed it. You know, it's it's very different now. And I think expectations are very different. But uh, of course, there is this cottage industry of, of trying to figure out who's going to be the next Bond. And it's been going on. It goes, it, it's, it sort of comes up every once in a while. Uh, certainly, you know, we've discussed it a little bit here on the show. There are uh, plenty of internet uh, articles about it. I think maybe, um, you know, even on, on my blog, I'll have to say I got into it recently. And uh, I, I think most prominent um, Idris Elba and Tom Hardy both have been considered front runners. They were mentioned back in 2015 when it looked like Spectre was going to be Daniel Craig's last film. And uh, though there are, are, they are, I mean, for them to start as Bond now, they're both a little long in the tooth. Uh, Elba is 49, Hardy is 44. Uh, you know, how many times could they, you know, put on the tux before they were just beyond the point where it would be for an action hero in the 21st century be be plausible i i actually don't i don't know yeah i think they would only get like two or three films under their belt before they're in roger moore territory i think yeah. and and uh you know moore was being criticized for it you know even before the 70s were out and he still made like you know three or four more bond films and he's been criticized as too old for the character uh and uh you know they they're, they're still i'm sure that still hurts <laughs> to, you know all these years later and I, I it would be nice to see um you know a younger fresh-faced bond who has the same you know that like like connery when he debuted as the character he'd been in a few things darby o'gill and the little people uh -huh. uh, probably the the disney film where he's uh sings to a bunch of leprechauns uh, i think that was probably his best known film prior to uh taking on the role um so i, I feel like it might not be a bad idea to to go back to square one and find someone who can have some longevity with the character over another you know four or five films it's yeah. it's, it's you know because like two or three feels like too few you know you want to get used to the character you want to enjoy watching them return like you know like dalton only got two films and i feel like uh, he could have kept going but for whatever reason they just decided they weren't working due to diminished box office or they feel he didn't have that kind of all purpose universal appeal i'm not 100% uh, sure on why they didn't bring him back for a third but uh, I, I feel like they need someone who has that special wow factor uh, and I think that that part of that will have to be them being fairly young I would think yeah you're probably right about that but then the question is do you go with someone who's already well established who has uh, been a big box office draw or do you find someone who's reasonably not that well known I mean Henry Cavill is in the conversation but he's been Superman which feels like he's already that's too just famous. weird yeah. yeah yeah he's already too famous and in uh, Enola Holmes recently the a great film I think we talked about it yeah um, he was he was Sherlock Holmes, which was really weird. Um, and I, he was I, a man from Uncle. Too, yeah, so. he's been a, and he's been in um, in uh, he's been a villain in uh, Mission Impossible. So he's done he's done spy movies, but you know I still don't see him quite right as Bond. Henry Golding, of course, is another actor who is who's getting prominent, but he hasn't. I think I don't know broken out. Maybe Crazy Rich Asians, uh, Last Christmas, and of course um, Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes, yeah. Which which you know I think he he, he that, those. Snake Eyes gives him action movie cred, so it it could be him. I think Golding is a pretty good choice. I I, I would be very comfortable with him as the character. Uh, he's he's certainly charming, uh, but he as you say he can he he's got the action chops, especially after all the training he did for Snake Eyes. Uh, you know, with swords and guns and and physical uh, 
physical prowess in a, in a fight. You know, there's a scene where he just jumps into a huge crowd of yakuza, and and uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot of stunting going on there, but but he certainly makes it look convincing anyway. Uh, and he's got that kind of enough sort of prior visibility that he would be a draw without being somebody who's already sort of kind of worn out their welcome. I mean, that was the great thing about Craig when a lot of people were kind of scratching their heads when Craig was named uh, for Casino Royale and uh, having seen him in Layer Cake where he plays kind of a British mafia fixer uh, and he was terrific in that film and I could, so I saw it right away just based on my love for that film uh, that that there'd be no issue that he would be great playing uh, playing James Bond. So that's I think that's probably the way they're going to go. Someone who's got that kind of mid-level mm. kind of success. Yeah, which takes Tom Hiddleston out of the, the story because, of course, he's Loki is, you know, he's huge with yeah. Marvel. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya uh, is an Oscar-winning actor, but I think he hasn't really done this kind of big-budget Actiony stuff. Oh no, that's not true. He was in uh, he was in the Marvel movie as well, but he was a supporting character in Black Panther. All right. So, but you know, I guess he's a possibility. Dev Patel also maybe. I like Dev Patel a lot. I think uh, you know, I think he the Green Knight. You know, obviously recently was was a was a movie that he was great in. But uh, I've seen him in lots of stuff. Lion. He was really good, and he's also pretty fit in all the ways that you can think of as fit. <laughs> yes. Like he's got that uh, physicality, which I think would be great. Um, Riz Ahmed has also been mentioned. I think he has the intensity, but he's also, he's not a big guy. And I no. wonder if maybe he'd that, be a good villain. He might be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder if he, if that would put him out of the running, um, you know, cause traditionally bond has been a large physical presence. Um, all right. So anyway, a couple others on, on under consideration, depending on what you read, Richard Madden, who is, is uh, known for a lot of people from Game of Thrones uh, and the series Bodyguard. He's quite good. Uh, oh, okay. And- yeah, I, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I haven't uh, watched any Game of Thrones, but I've seen him in other things. Yes. And I, I've got the image in my head, and he wears a suit real well. So. He does, yeah, for sure. And even young Spider-Man himself, Tom Holland. But again, maybe too famous. Um, I think they might try and avoid somebody who's in a franchise, just because the product you know the way these things get bogged down in production schedules and so on to have someone from the marvel verse you know bumping heads with the production schedule of a bond film might might not uh might not be the greatest fit but uh but you know they'll, they'll obviously pick whoever's right for the role uh-huh. whoever they think is right for the role um regardless of all that other stuff but i have a feeling that that might be a strike against whoever they they choose yeah. Yeah. Um, and that would be a strike against uh, someone like, well, James McAvoy was suggested by my frequent Cinepanion and partner Sharon because she thinks he's awesome. And he's at 42, might be just the right age. But uh, can, you ask, can he do suave? And I don't know if I don't know if I've seen him do suave. He can do a lot of other things. Yeah. But, I mean, he's a very good actor. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm just trying to think, and I, it's not really hitting me in, yeah. in the kind of way. But then I thought, you know, like, oh, if only like you and McGregor of 20 years ago had been picked to do it. He probably would have been a a really great choice. He would have been too. Yeah. Uh, And I actually am okay with seeing a woman play the role. I'd love to see Emily Blunt play Bond, but uh, I gather that uh, Barbara Broccoli, uh, the producer is not uh, in favor of that, but I had this idea actually thinking about this before we recorded was what if you jumped, you take the, the Craig bonds jumped ahead 15 or 20 years. Matilde becomes an agent. And then carries on the the franchise as, you know, Matilda James Bond. I mean, maybe James is her middle name. I don't know. I just, I was kind of like, you know, brainstorming. I thought, well, maybe that's a way they could do it. 
Well, I, that means we'd have to wait 15 years for a movie. <laughs> well, no, they just recast, I yes, guess. Yes, I guess, I yes. guess. So, um, I mean, that's a very distinct possibility. But I, I think I, I sort of see where Broccoli's coming from. And, and uh, I think that because of, and, it's, and I'm sure it's based on marketing. I mean, you know, not necessarily for artistic reasons, but for all the marketing they do and all the targeting of, of watches and cars and, you know, high blend whiskeys and you know tailors <laughs> tom ford suits and all that kind of stuff i think i think it's fairly established in a, in a male world i don't know how i mean i mean it'd be interesting interesting to see them switch gears have a female bond and then alter the marketing accordingly uh i think that would be a, an interesting although somewhat cynical kind of way yeah. to think about it i i, I tend not to think about the way they use bond as a marketing tool because i can't afford any of the stuff they're talking about for you know the the watches and the cars and the suits and everything like that but uh and i don't even fantasize about that stuff so um you know it's it could be interesting to take that approach but i have a feeling that's a big consideration too even though it's you know more the financial end of things and not the artistic yeah i mean let's face it bond has been for 60 years a male fantasy and so you know all of that stuff is sold on the back of that kind of thought or that kind of marketing so you're right i think yeah that's the way it's probably going to go um now another thing worth considering is that a lot of very high visibility filmmakers have come forward as wanting to direct Bond. And I think there's an opportunity here for Eon to maybe let go a little bit of the sort of control and allow some of these filmmakers to step in and do maybe a one and done film uh, going forward. And I, you know, choose a new Bond. I'm sure it'll be great, whoever they choose, because they have such a great record of that. And then, um, you know, and then give the franchise to these, I mean, Christopher Nolan has said many times in interviews how much he has always wanted to direct or be do a Bond movie. I mean, some of many of his movies seem a little bit like Bond movies, you know, uh, from Tenet to sure. Inception. Um, and then last week, uh, Denis Villeneuve of Dune uh, and many other great films said he would love to do a Bond movie. Uh, in the past, Quentin Tarantino pitched a version of Bond. Um, Danny Boyle was supposed to have directed No Time to Die, but there was a falling out of creative, you know, conditions. And uh, I think they could go back to him and say, you know, let's see your version. I, I mean, I would love to see Danny Boyle's version. Even Steven Spielberg was once, um, you know, offered his service to Eon and he was turned down. And now he says that they couldn't afford him. But I mean, you know, I mean, he... Anyway, I would love to see Steven Spielberg's James Bond and just have them be self-contained. You know, after having done the arc and all of that, having uh, attaching the the brand to super recognizable uh, filmmakers, I think could be a solution going forward. And just have you know, give give the keys of the car to the Aston Martin to these guys and see what they can do. Um, of course, I recognize that these are all like you know older white dudes. There's a lot of other interesting filmmakers from around the world uh, who could. Who could, uh, you know, I, I mentioned this actually in an article in my uh, on my blog, uh, Matty Diop, who's a Senegalese French filmmaker, or um, Julia Ducorno, uh, who did Titan, which is in cinemas now. Imagine what she would do with Bond. Uh, Taika Waititi. Anyway. Yes. Oh, yeah. Taika Waititi would be great. Yeah. So anyway, uh, what do you think of all those those names? Anything jump out at you, Stephen? Well, I, I have a feeling Danny Boyle won't happen because of the way that uh, relationship ended. But yeah. uh, I don't know, maybe or maybe an Edgar Wright. Uh, oh my gosh, Bond that would film. be great! I would uh, love to see that. Uh, or uh, 
you know, if a, if a female filmmaker took it on, maybe Catherine Bigelow, mm-hmm. you know, you consider, uh, even though the politics of Zero Dark Thirty, I don't necessarily agree with, but the way it was shot and some of the tension that was brought to some of those scenes, I thought, you know, that, you know, maybe a certain amount of realism could, uh, could help uh, inject something new into the into the series um i don't know guillermo del toro <laughs> maybe <laughs> do 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 a bond with some some kind of maybe not supernatural but maybe something a little more gothic and creepy uh i mean you know live and let die had voodoo in it for crying out loud so why not you know why not uh, do something kind of exotic with uh, with uh, the next round yeah no absolutely there are a lot of possibilities but i you know they i have to give them credits the broccolis have done something where they have managed to sort of you know take the temperature of of the you know the zeitgeist and 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 either bring it to bond or bring bond to the zeitgeist i'm not sure which but uh but yeah there there are so many possibilities i'm i i don't actually envy them having to make a decision about where to go from here because clearly they've had so much success with these past five movies that uh that how how where do you go from here i i don't know the answer to that and i certainly don't know how you reboot it from from what they did in no time to die And that wraps up our look at No Time to Die, the last Daniel Craig installment in the James Bond 007 legacy. And I thought uh, overall a fine way to go out with that character and for that actor. And uh, I'm looking forward to what happens next. And and how how do you feel overall about how the the series played out? Obviously, we had some dips here and there, but uh, I feel like compared to its previous decade or so, I I feel like uh, we got a pretty good bond for this generation. I think we did too. Yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to watching them again and again, just like I've watched all of these yes. films again and again over the years. And uh, and yeah, even while I sometimes disagreed with some of the risks that they took, I uh, very much enjoyed them. And I and yeah, I've enjoyed them more the more I've watched them. So that that works for me. Well, I definitely uh, now that I've gone back and rewatched Doctor No for like the probably the fifth time, I feel like now <laughs> maybe I'm compelled to once again <laughs> go through 25 films. Uh, not all at once, but but uh, revisit the series, and, and certainly there's some Roger Moore titles that I've not seen since they opened in theaters. So wow, that'll be curious. It'll be interesting to say have another look at Octopussy, which is the film that made me swear off Bond films for a little while. I didn't even see View to a Kill in a the theater because Octopussy made me so mad. So yeah, it's not great, but I think you'll find things to enjoy now uh, with a little distance. Um, but uh, but yeah, Bond is can be found all the movies right now on Crave, and uh, of course you and I have them in in blu-ray and dvd i'm sure yes and a bunch of them are on prime not all of them but a bunch of them can be seen on prime uh if you have the subscription or you can pay like an extra few bucks and see the ones that aren't uh, automatically available for streaming but i mean finding a james bond film is probably the easiest thing in the world compared to some of the titles that we've talked about over the years uh and uh you know if you want to share your thoughts on james bond and no time to die of course we have a twitter account at lens me your ears and uh also a facebook page where you can uh, chime in on the posts for the uh, for the shows and of course you can find us on twitter i'm on there with an account at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e and my my uh, Twitter account is named after my blog, Flaw in the Iris. And of course, every week we want to thank the folks here at CKDU. 
88.1 FM for the use of the studio and for airing the show every other Tuesday. And of course, everyone at the Village Soundcast Network who put the final nuts and bolts of the show together so that we can get it up on the podcast platforms for your enjoyment. So thanks very much for tuning in. And uh, I have to say that Lens Me Your Ears will return. <laughs> we have all the time in the world, Stephen. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.